0: All right, as James said earlier if you 're a guest with us, and you 're wondering why I was playing guitar and why i 'm now preaching i 'm um, the Connect minister, which is uh, just a really convoluted way of saying they don 't know what to call me. Um, I do a lot of different things. Uh, my job is to help people get connected here in the church, so that the name fits slightly i do i 'm a man of many hats, and i don 't normally preach, but uh, given the opportunity, um, I love to and so Uh, I'm glad to do it this morning. I know we've spent several moments in prayer already this morning, but I just want to stop for a moment one more time. And since we're going to be speaking on, talking about rather, the unity of the church, we have an opportunity right now to to, to unite with the church globally in praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are affected by the, the events of this past weekend in Paris and also in Beirut. Um... Brothers and sisters all over the world who are facing uh, serious persecution and danger. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to unite with them in prayer. So if you would, just bow your heads. Pray for our brothers and sisters who are affected uh, by the tragedies that occurred this weekend. And, you know, frankly, that occur often um, in, in certain parts of the world. God, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ God, especially right now in Paris and in Beirut, as we we know all too well uh, the effects of this evil, God, and, and how it can and make us feel and just can frighten us, God. But we want to lift up our brothers and sisters, God. We want them to be encouraged in you and to find strength in you. And God, ultimately, our hope is that you could be glorified through this terrible tragedy that your name could be made famous through the occurrences of this past weekend. God, we lift up all of our brothers and sisters around the world who face terrible danger and persecution. Lord, our hearts break for them, and we love them. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So James started us last week, um, I'm going to pass down the concept of unity, and you can see we've called this series United. This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. But as you're turning, I have a question for you. Was anyone else awkward from ages about 10 to 18? Yeah? It's a pretty common thing. It's a difficult time. In our lives, we're trying to figure things out. We have so many things going against us um, at that age. And awkwardness may occur in different forms for different people. For me, awkwardness came in in the area of growth. I've always been big, I've always been tall. Look, in the sixth grade, they decided it was a good idea to sell us these ID cards. And I thought it was a great idea because it was almost like I had a license and I was 11. It had our picture and name, so then they measured us. And looking back on it, it was probably more so they could like identify us if we'd been kidnapped or something like that. It was kind of weird in that sense. But really, it was an identification card. It stands out in my mind because they had to measure us. And in the sixth grade, I was nearly 5'10 and weighed 160 pounds. I was was a full-grown man at 11. And so this has just been my life. I didn't stop growing height-wise until I was 22. I'm 6'4 now. Um, through junior high on into high school, my age was my shoe size from about 10 to 16. Um, my, my feet shrunk down a little bit. I'm not, in the, I'm not quite in the clown shoes anymore. I'm in a, I'm in a 14, so just skis. Um, walking around in coordination in general. Was a challenge for me as a as a big, tall kind of guy. Um, clothes were difficult, constantly growing out of clothes, and hand-me-downs weren't an option. I was already three inches taller than my older brothers, and so everything was high waters on me. It was just awkward. But the same can be said for the church. Sometimes we're just awkward in the way we work. Just as with our own bodies, if things aren't working together, it can be really difficult to accomplish the tasks that we've been charged with. So we want to start here in Scripture. I want to read for us, if you are not already there, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 and go through verse 16. The Scripture will be up on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV, but feel free to read from your own copy of God's Word. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Last week, James told us that we are united for him, but when we aren't united for him, we aren't united at all. And that's a fundamental statement. We're going to start there this morning, and in fact, it's where Paul starts in verse 7. verse 7 says that but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift and into verse 8 therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a co- host of captives and gave gifts to men you'll see in verse 8 in your bible it probably looks like verse 8 it gets smushed down a little bit it's kind of center adjusted that's because it's a cite or it's a it's a citation from another part of the Bible. It's from Psalm 68, verse 18, which says, the same that he ascended. So what does this mean for us? Paul is setting the standard here, setting the foundation for what it means to be unified in the body. And he states that Christ is who he says he is. By saying that he ascended, it means he, first, he would have first had to have descended from heaven Meaning he is the Son of God and that he defeated sin and death. He also came to fulfill prophecy. And it also says that he leads a host of captives with him. That's talking about us. All of this means that Jesus came to earth, he defeated sin and death, he defeated Satan. All for the purpose of making his father's name famous and for making a way for anyone who would follow him and enter into the kingdom of God. The foundation of unity is in recognizing Jesus as king. It is foundational for us, just personally as we try to unify with Christ, to recognize that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And then as a church, each of us have to have that same mindset that Jesus is supreme no matter what. So looking forward into verse 8, what does it mean that he gave gifts? This is a point where Paul shifts from uh, a a focal point of where every believer has a common uh, belief and a common uh, standing there, and he moves into a place where we all differ. It says he gave the gifts for unity. And the gifts are not to be confused with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Although you would read these and, and read in other places and see, oh, these, all these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that's true. But here in this passage, uh, the words apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are actually offices or positions within the church and not specifically talking about the gift, although the people in these positions. Had these gifts. So, what are they? The apostles. It can be confusing, and I don't want to be sensitive. I know some of us might come from different backgrounds where people in our church held the position of apostle and, or, or something else like, like an apostle. When Paul is speaking of apostle here in, in verse 11, he's speaking specifically of the office of apostle which was limited to a specific number of men in history the 12 apostles and there can sometimes be confusion because sometimes we call them the 12 disciples sometimes we call them the 12 apostles well they, they were really the apostles and what that means uh, is that they were men who had a charge from God that spent time with Jesus uh, in his ministry and so Today, does that mean that there aren't apostles? And in the strictest New Testament sense, if we take the word for what it says, the answer is yes. These men were integral in laying the foundation of the church. Some were even given the authority to write scripture. And each was commissioned with a specific call from God. Also, in order to be in the office or position of an apostle, you would have had to have spent personal time and experience in the ministry of Christ. And then once the foundation of the church was lain, uh, the office of apostle in the New Testament sense is no longer necessary in the church. Though the office of apostle isn't present in our church today, The gift of apostleship, which is one of the spiritual gifts, is still very much alive today. I have a list of some of the things that, if you look up the definition of the the gift apostleship, here is what it says. Today, the ones who possess the gift of apostleship plant new ministries. They plant churches. They go into places where the gospel is not preached they reach across cultures and establish churches in challenging environments. They raise up and develop leaders. They call out and lead pastors and shepherds. They are our missionaries, our church planters, Christian scholars, institutional leaders, and the ones that lead multiple uh, ministries. So the act of apostleship is very much still alive in the church today, but the position of an apostle is no longer necessary. The next gift that it says Jesus leaves with us here on earth is, is the position of the prophet or the office of prophet. And we can tend to associate the word prophet with a sort of supernatural foretelling of the future, almost like an oracle. And in the New Testament sense, that's, that's not what is meant here uh, In the New Testament, the sole purpose of the prophet, of the prophet was instead that they were the ones who proclaimed the Word of God, because believers in the first century didn 't have a Bible, they didn 't have access to god 's Word. In fact, the New Testament itself, like we have, wasn 't even completed, and so their job was to proclaim the Word of the Lord. and so just like the office of an apostle. The office of a prophet in the church um, was fulfilled by the completion of their ministry and the recording of God's word. That position is no longer necessary in the church. But that doesn't mean the gift of prophecy is necessarily dead. Even in the New Testament times, the purpose of prophecy was to edify and then to encourage and to give consolation. But no matter what, when you hear prophecy today or if you hear someone telling you about an old prophecy, it cannot contradict Scripture. That's the measuring stick we have to measure up against all of these things. When we say, if you hear someone saying that contradicts God's Word, it's false. The next station he gives us is evangelists. Evangelists are the bearers of good news. These men traveled from place to place, uh, spreading the gospel and to the lost. The apostles and the prophets of the New Testament laid the foundation of the church and the evangelists came behind to continue to build upon their work. Um, the calling and the gift of evangelism is still very much alive and that's pretty common within most, uh, especially American churches and in churches in general around the world. Evangelism is still very much alive. The gift of evangelism is defined as a deep burden for the lost and a desire to lead them to Christ. But even though we might not fully possess any of these gifts, but specifically that one, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card or a pass to be able to say, well, oh, I don't have that gift, so I'm not going to be an evangelist. You don't have to be an evangelist to evangelize. You and your very nature in your life, being a believer of Christ, are a witness to what he's done for your life. In that way, you are an evangelist. So we, we can use the way we live as a tool to spread the gospel. But we are all called to have a burden for the lost and the broken. Finally, he gives us the position or the office of pastors and teachers. In some of your translations, you might see the word some before, and it's making a distinction that some are apostles, some people are prophets, some people are evangelists, and then others, uh, teachers and pastors. That gives a distinction and indicates that here within the office of of teacher and pastor, we have one office and within two ministries is is the distinction there. It's one person, one or it's a, a position with more than one job. Uh, the word pastor means shepherd, uh, which he identifies his local his local church as his flock, which he is, has been given to him as his responsibility ability to lead. And to feed. Peter explains this responsibility further in his letter to the Corinthians. Um, and if you want to turn with me, you can to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, otherwise, I'll read it aloud. He says this in chapter 5, verse 1 So I exhort the elders among you. An elder is just another word for a pastor. So I exhort the elders among you, and as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in which you are in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd says, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A pastor can only lead and feed by the word. The word is our bread and it is our staff that guides us. The same goes for those who are teachers. You can only lead by the word and all else is useless. God's word sustains us. God's word protects us. And there's no amount of, there's no amount of entertainment, there's no amount of fellowship, there's no amount of good programs or good deeds or, or things that we can do that can take place of that. They, they can't take the place of God's word. There is no substitute. Pastor also doesn't excuse the body from doing the work you see that we have these positions. They're all leading up to a point at the end in verse 12. All these things, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And I'm going to say something, and I, I don't mean that we would do this as a church. It's just a general statement. But when we call a pastor to be the pastor the shepherd of our church. We don't do so to pay him to come here and do all the work. His job is to lead us and to feed us. So instead, we follow his leadership and he equips us through the word to do the ministry where we have been called to do. That doesn't mean that the pastor Gets, out of free, gets a jail out of jail free card as well where the pastor obviously as we just read is called to the same thing so all of these things all of these gifts we have are supposed to bring us to unity each of these gifts is given to us for the growth of the kingdom and to bring unity among the body Paul states that some of the gifts are more important in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 But he also says that every member of the body is still necessary for the body to properly function. And a member cannot function outside of its body. Just as with our physical body, every member has its purpose and function. The immature body is an awkward one. Just like I was talking about it between ages probably 10 and 14. It was difficult sometimes tripping over my skis or gigantic feet. They're not actual skis. I just want to let you have gigantic feet. Um, It can be difficult in an immature body to perform the simple tasks. But even in the body that's seemingly mature, but each member doesn't serve its intended purpose, cannot function the way the body is intended. It's as if our hands were trying to be our feet or our ears were trying to be our eyes. They're just not meant to be, and if they were trying to, it would just be really weird. Uh, the same goes for the church universally and locally. If we want to grow individually, if we want to grow locally here as a church and globally as a church, we have to look to Jesus as our example of, of maturity, physically and spiritually. So in my study I found uh, a commentary by a guy named Dr. Warren Wiersbe. Uh, we've done several of his studies uh, with our Connections Young Adult Bible Study. I know the women's ministry and some of the other Sunday school class classes have uh, used his stuff. In his commentary, uh, he gives four evidences for spiritual growth. The first one is Christ's likeness. Verse 13 says that we should grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ. That means we have to seek to know Christ and all that he is through the word in order to be more like him. And that, we have, and that when we have, we are complete and total in our faith in him. And I've read this, this passage that we're studying here today, I don't know how many times, a lot. Um, but it wasn't until last night at about midnight, and maybe that's what it was, because uh, I was just up reading and trying to, to get all this right. And I read that passage, verse 13. Let me read it one more time for you. First, it, I'll start in 12. Uh, we to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the whole body in Christ. 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we are to seek Christ until we have reached the full stature of Christ. That is a huge statement, that is a mountain of a statement to say that we continue to work, we continue to push forward, we continue to seek Christ until we're exactly like him. And when is that? It doesn't end. it doesn't stop. We seek Christ without end. And that is how we attain the, the spiritual growth of Christ's likeness. The second he gives is from verse 14. It's stability. Verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and cared about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are a number of, of so-called ministers, pastors, and authors, and teachers that would try to lead you away from the Lord. I'm not going to name any names, but they're going to try to convince you that what you have here on earth is as good as it gets. You can tell who they are because they rarely use Scripture. They rarely mention the name of Jesus. And when they do use Scripture, it's probably out of context and we can we can know this because we have the measuring stick of God's Word, which is the reason why a Christ-like knowledge of the Word and of who He is is so important because we can test the things we hear. When we get caught up in things on Facebook or, you know, we hear something from a friend that they think is true about the Bible, we can go to the Bible. We can... Seek God's word and see truth. The word of God is the anchor that will secure us in the storm. That's true when it comes to unity. It's also true in just our everyday lives. No matter what you're facing, no matter what trial or temptation or storm or question, it can be measured up against God's word. It's in there, and it's ready to be used for you to be edified and built up for the purpose of the Lord. The third that he gives is truth joined in love. Verse 15 says, "Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The truth is not a club with which we bash the heads of unbelievers or of fellow believers. It's not meant to be a tool to get our way, but rather it's meant to edify and build up. It's meant to lead people closer to that Christ-likeness that we already talked about, that first evidence of spiritual growth. But this doesn't mean that we have to keep our mouths shut when we recognize something is being wrong. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a sign of maturity, of spiritual maturity, when we can approach each other with the truth and share the truth in love. And do so with the purpose of leading each other to be more Christ-like. And this is not some sort of hippie, touchy-feely kind of love. I'm not talking about loving everyone for whatever they are. We should love people just right where they are, but we don't have to love everything they do. We don't have to love everything someone says. We can tell them the truth in love. In fact, the same guy that wrote this this, uh, Four Evidences here has a quote in that book that says, Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. I thought that was a great statement that we can give the truth in love but we can also give love in truth. And love outside of truth is useless. It's just a fading thing. It's just hypocrisy. Finally, the fourth sign of spiritual growth is cooperation. Again in verses 15 and then 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Cooperation says that we understand as members of the church globally and locally that we belong to each other, and that we need each other. That every position, every person, every member is important. And even though it may seem that one person is more significant than the other, we, we all know that every believer has a ministry which, which they've been called to by God. Whether that be the pastor or the leader of a ministry or a Sunday school teacher or youth minister or if you're the guy that comes up and takes the garbage out or if you're cleaning up or if you're visiting or writing cards or... Whatever it may be, your ministry is just as important as any other. And that's one of the areas where we can attain unity when we realize the value of every single person's job. We also can't isolate ourselves because we see ourselves as higher because we hold a position that may hold a little more importance uh, in the kingdom or even on this, in this kingdom here on earth. We can't isolate ourselves because we can't do ministry on our own. If we're on our own, we can't minister to anyone. And if we're on our own, we can't have anyone minister to us. It's a two-way street. Spiritual growth comes from Christ being our focus and leads to the body building itself up in love. And just like our physical bodies, The body of Christ grows for a purpose outside of itself, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. All of these things, to attain unity within the church globally and locally, serve a purpose. It's not just so that we all get along. It's so that we can be unified in one purpose, and that's making famous the name of Jesus and doing the work that he's called us to do while we're here on this earth. James said last week, greater are we who are one than we who are many. I hope these words are true for you already, that you already recognize, hey, yeah, this is great. This is where, this is where I am and this is the way we need to go. But maybe for you this morning it makes absolutely no sense. You, you have no idea what it means to be unified with Christ or to be unified as the body of Christ. Maybe God has shown you this morning a couple of areas in your life where we can do, be doing better as far as unity. James told us last week, maybe there are things going on in our life that are preventing us from being able to be unified with another person. Maybe we have things that are separating us in our relationships with our husbands, with our wives, with our friends, with former friends. We have the opportunity this morning to put that to an end. We're gonna sing a song in a little bit. Trent's gonna come up and we're gonna sing the song, Come Now, Fount of Every Blessing. And in that song, there's a sentence that says, Hold to me, Lord, like a fetter. Because, it didn't say this exactly, but hold to me like a fetter because my heart will wander and I want to be connected. To you, Lord God. Maybe you want to say that to the Lord for the first time this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Trent's going to come up and lead us, and then we'll go forward.